You're listening to the N2K Space Network. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. While launch and rocketry are fun and flashy, the real power movers and shakers in the space economy are, and have been for some time, satellites. By many common estimates, the satellite industry comprises over 70% of the entire space economy. In 2021, it was purported to be worth $279 billion. It's amazing to cover the satellite behemoths like Intelsat and SES, like we will be today, where in some cases, a billion dollars or so is considered kind of a rounding error. T-minus. Today is August 4th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazes. I'm Alice Carruth, and this is T Minus. SES releases positive financial results but discloses power issues with its O3B Empower satellites. SES and Intelsat are awaiting a big payout. NASA and Axiom sign a fourth agreement to send private astronauts to the ISS. And our guest today is Francis Walker, director at Corgan's London studio on designing spaceports around the world. You don't want to miss it. Happy Friday, everyone. Let's take a look at our Intel briefing for today. Looking at the first half of the year financials, it's good news, everyone, for satellite giant SES. The company says they grew by 10% in the first half of the year when compared to last year, with total revenue at 987 million euros in that time, roughly equivalent to 1.08 billion U.S. dollars. The company is expecting that performance to sustain through the year, with an expected year-end revenue of 1.95 to 2 billion euros projected for 2023. Something that did come up in the half-year financial results call yesterday, though, is worth noting, though we don't want to be alarmist about it either. SES interim CEO Roy Pinto said the company has seen intermittent power trip-offs on a few of the power modules aboard the company's second generation of O3B satellites, the O3B Empower satellites. When speaking about the power trip-offs on the four O3B Empower satellites in medium Earth orbit, Pinto said this. These trip-offs were recovered quickly and without impact on the performance of the Empower payloads. We will continue to investigate this phenomenon. All in all, says Pinto, We are not overly concerned, but we want to make sure that we have no hiccups when we deploy these services. 
but we're not really worried about any long-term or even short-term impacts of it. Along those lines, Pinto says the new satellites are still on track to be online for commercial service by the end of this year. SES's fifth and sixth O3V Empower satellites are due to launch in the third quarter of the year, and the plan is for the entire satellite fleet of 11 to be launched by next year. And on a related note, both SES and Intelsat are expecting a bit of a payout towards the end of this year from telecommunication companies like T-Mobile, Verizon and AT&T via the FCC as a thanks for clearing out the lower 300 megahertz of the C-band spectrum to give space for terrestrial 5G operators. A bit of a payout to the tune of approximately 4 billion US dollars for SES and about 5 billion for Intelsat, thanks to Intelsat's latest satellite, a Maxar-built Galaxy 37 that launched yesterday on SpaceX's Falcon 9. NASA and Axiom Space have signed a mission order for a fourth private astronaut mission to the International Space Station. The Axiom Mission 4, also known as AX-4, is targeting a launch no earlier than August of next year and is expected to spend up to 14 days docked to the ISS. According to the press release, the AX-4 crew members will train with NASA, international partners, and SpaceX for their flight. SpaceX is contracted as Axiom's launch provider for transportation to and from the space station and will work with the private astronauts to familiarize them with systems, procedures, and emergency preparedness for the Dragon spacecraft. Speaking of the ISS, one of the experiments that arrived at the station today on board Northrop Grumman Cygnus is hoping to help patients on Earth undergoing treatment for blood cancer. Sierra Space, in collaboration with BioServe Space Technologies at the University of Colorado Boulder and other partners, is aiming to grow hematopoietic stem cells in microgravity. Now, what is that crazy word I just said? (laughs) Well, hematopoietic stem cells are multipotent primitive cells that can develop into all types of blood cells. The aim of the experiment is to better understand how the cells from a healthy donor's bone marrow or blood can be transplanted into a matched recipient. Hematopoietic stem cells can be obtained from donated umbilical cord blood, which are closer in nature to embryonic stem cells and offer a lower risk of complication. When grown on Earth, hematopoietic stem cells normally change into dedicated blood cell lines, which is not optimal for patient recovery. The study team has sent stem cell samples from multiple umbilical cord blood donors to look for beneficial differences during the cell growth experiment. The stem cell samples will be frozen at different time points while in orbit and sent back to Earth for analysis. A super cool example of how space is helping us here on planet Earth. And staying with the space benefiting Earth theme... Brazil's space research agency, INPE, has said that deforestation in the country's Amazon fell in July to its lowest level for the month since 2017. And why is a space agency involved in this? Well, that information came from data collected by satellites. The data indicated that 193 square miles of rainforest were cleared in the last month, which is a 66% drop from the same period a year ago. Now, let's hope that's a trend that stays in the right direction. Amen. Huge solar arrays have been tested and permanently installed on the Psyche spacecraft in preparation for its 2.5 billion mile journey to study a metal-rich asteroid of the same name. The solar arrays will produce more than 20 kilowatts of power when the spacecraft is near Earth, 
but are primarily designed to work in the low light of deep space. The asteroid psyche will be travelling so far from the Sun that even these massive arrays will only generate just over 2 kilowatts of power at that distance. NASA says that the vehicle's electrical needs are only a little more than that of which is needed to power a hairdryer. I do love these crazy comparisons. SpaceX's Falcon Heavy is due to launch Psyche as early as October the 5th of this year. All military branches in the U.S. have a National Guard, except for the Space Force. But that may change if the U.S. Senate and House can come to an agreement. Good luck with that. For the second year in a row, the House approved the creation of a Space National Guard as part of the National Defense Authorization Bill. The Senate, however, didn't fully agree and included a provision which would require the Pentagon to contract with a federally funded research and development center for an independent study of the best courses of action. These include space units staying in the Air National Guard, a Space National Guard, or folding everyone into the Space Force. The study would include cost-benefit analyses of each and would be due by February 2025. That's not the outright approval that anyone was looking for, but I guess it's a step in the right direction. Guardian Guard does have an appealing ring to it, doesn't it? Absolutely. If you've ever worked at a space program, then you know that there are a lot of reviews and critical milestones that the program must meet throughout its development. Reaching those milestones are a pretty big deal to those involved, So congrats to the European Space Agency's aerial mission for passing its payload preliminary design review. The next generation mission to observe the chemical makeup of distant extrasolar planets is not expected to launch until later this decade. But as a result of this latest achievement, Ariel's payload critical technology is now considered at technical readiness level 6. This indicates that the mission can now proceed to payload critical design review and begin to manufacture its first prototype models. Kudos to that team. And you know, we've covered a lot of space debris stories this week, so it's only fair that we cover one more just to close out our briefing today. Russia has opened a facility in South Africa that will be used to detect threats from space junk. The space debris detection facility is stationed at the South African National Space Agency's Hartbishook facility in the northwest of the country. A spokesperson for Roscosmos said that the facility will help detect potentially dangerous situations for spacecraft. And we say that the more organizations working to monitor space debris, the better. You can find links to all the stories we have covered today in our show notes at space.n2k.com. We've even included one on the Space Command HQ. We at T-Miners have put this story to bed, but apparently some politicians have not. So it's your call if you want to read more on that or not. Hey, T-Minus crew. Tune in tomorrow for T-Minus Deep Space, which is our show for extended interviews, special editions, and deep dives with some of the most influential professionals in the space industry. Tomorrow, we have Francis Walker talking about designing spaceports in depth. So check it out while you're mowing the lawn, grocery shopping, folding the laundry, or driving your kids to the game. You don't want to miss it. Oh, and T-Minus crew, one last programming note from me. Now, I will be away from the microphone for the next two weeks. So starting on Monday the 7th, your host for the next two weeks is the absolutely amazing Alice Carruth, T-Minus producer extraordinaire, who will be covering for me on the mic while I'm gone. And as always, you're in the best of hands. 
Oh, bless you, Maria. <laughs> Bring me to tears. <laughs> Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru, be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com/cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com/cyberwire. Our guest today is an architect that focuses on designing spaceports. Francis Walker works at Corgan, a large U.S.-based architecture firm. Now, I started off by asking if Francis could walk me through his thoughts on where we are with spaceports now and where we should be thinking about taking them in the future. I'm the director of Corgan's London studio. Corgan are a a large US-based architect with core expertise in aviation, data centers, commercial, healthcare, education. My focus is aviation and, by extension, vertiports and, in particular, spaceports. As a firm, we've been doing aviation since commercial aviation was a new thing. And we've looked at a lot of projects internationally, and we've looked around the world at doing airports and doing aviation work. And you know, that there are big aspects about airports, which are about security, operation, commercial drivers, but also about how the passenger feels when they come to the airport and the idea of gateway and the idea of uh, arriving in a new place. And, you know, when we work with, with countries, they're very uh, invested and understand the value of the airport being a gateway. So if we extrapolate that to spaceports, there's no more romantic gateway for us right now than the gateway to to space and because we have that that sort of um expertise in in how things operate but we also understand the value of the experience being memorable and of kind of the the psychological and emotional challenges that that people will face um when traveling, uh, there's a certain amount. They might be traveling for the first time. And in the context of space, there is going to be an increasing number of people traveling for the first time in a way that very few people until now have traveled. So what do they need to reassure them, to to give them some some comfort, um, some orientation, some stillness, what, whatever it is that they need to facilitate the, the or, or to alleviate the stress of that journey it's kind of the same conversation that we have in aviation and in vertiports with eVTOL, which is another emerging modality that involves us leaving the ground. Infrastructure tends to be a heavy word that's used in heavy ways, but we we tend to stick cooler words in front of infrastructure to try and paint a different picture. So 
uh, we talk about evolutionary infrastructure, which is very much about space and very much about helping us move forward as uh, a species into space in a way that is uh, meaningful and that can be scaled up and that can take root because I'm not the expert on the challenges that a person faces going into space. As you know, there is there is a whole group of experts around the health and well-being of astronauts. That's a that's a separate subject for me. What I'm interested in and what I'm curious about is a number of things that happen on our planet that are related to it. So from the perspective of spaceports, it's about education, it's about um, community. It's about a number of things that as an architect, we think about all the time. So we think about cities and we tend to take the cities that we live in for granted that this is how a city functions. But actually the way that we are organizing cities if we use spaceports and we use air mobility as as the kind of uh, driver, it's very different from the automobile, which you know you, you know American cities um, and European cities are is is essentially from the horse and cart to the automobile. The diagram for those cities and the way lives are organised is very similar. With spaceports, with eVTOL, and with changes in technology and life work balance. I think that there is a really interesting time for us to think about how spaceports can influence it, how space as a network, global network, can start to shape different types of communities. Uh, I think that's really interesting and worth thinking about now. I'm curious, what kind of things does someone need to see or experience before they're heading off into space? Like, What kind of experiences do you want to build in uh, to to make that journey more exciting, comforting? I'm not even sure if I'm asking the right question, but I'm, I'm just really curious about that experience that you're building. I think it's extremely significant. I, I, I think that if I was to imagine 24 hours before launch, what, what do I want? You, you'll want, you know, loved ones around you, but you'll also want to, I think you're, you'll have heightened senses about your home planet, you know, because that's kind of the context that we're thinking about this. And so we're, we're doing some work with some some clients where we're talking about that a lot. And we're talking about it across all the types of sensory experience. Connection to nature is the thing that comes back a lot. And, and it's a really interesting, uh, I wouldn't call it a paradox, but it's a really interesting scenario where you're, a, you're about to leave the planet. It's never sort of been more important to you and you're open to it. So one example we did uh, on a on a sort of um, a concept design that that we're working on for a spaceport is pre-launch. There's almost like a a contemporary version of a forest clearing, and we and we kind of designed the um, the the residential spaces around this courtyard. And this courtyard was a forest, and in the centre of the forest was a clearing, and it had a a view up to the to the night sky, and that was all you could see. And what we what we really liked about that was it was sort of connecting us with a very, very sort of tribal past and a very sort of, um, you know, going back a long way to the very origins of how we started to organize as a society and, and the idea of sharing stories and looking up to the skies and doing these things. It felt like a nice point of departure and a nice 
um, complement to the the fact that you're essentially being strapped into a machine and fired fired up at a ridiculous velocity up into the sky. <laughs> you know, when you put it that way. Yeah, yeah. You, yes. you, you, you kind of want to look at that sideways a little bit, you know. <laughs> it's so fascinating to hear about sort of thinking about the broader human journey and taking that into building that into the spaceport. You mentioned something about also the, the idea of community. Could you speak a little bit more on what you mean about that and maybe how that weaves into your ideas there? Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's probably important for me to caveat by saying that I have friends uh, and colleagues developing spaceports um, that are uh, heavily involved in the regulatory side and the safety side and, and the risk issues. We need to resolve those kind of parameters before we can really um, push forward and establish. But the way that we're thinking about it is if we can align the structure of education and the opportunities that exist in space and create a platform for the coming generation to have a path to space, I'm a big believer in not knowing what the answer is, but I'm smart enough to know that smarter people will come along if we give them the the platform and the opportunity to develop some of these things. Where, where I get really interested in it is we tend to have siloed expertise in different areas. And I see space as a place where people with different lenses on the same challenge can cross-pollinate and can come together and you have physicists with artists with people that are that are experts in agriculture with people that know robotics and i think that the big jump the big leap forward comes from getting those people to folk to look the same way you know if you if you look at um where we send our talent tends to be where we make big jumps right so everyone went to silicon valley in the 50s and 60s and and look where we are now uh, and they went to wall street in the 80s and uh, you know, it's it's up to us where we, th- those paths that we build. And I just find it really interesting. And I learn a lot from um, from my children about where their interests lie. Um, I have three daughters and, and I want them to have interesting careers and they can go do what they want. But one thing I, that I think is, is significant for them is is there an interesting way to to help? Um, is there an interesting way to to get involved in some of these uh, innovations and some of these developments that, you know, like I say, I, I don't know what those developments are going to be. I just know that if we can get good people to face in that direction, that it's going to be really interesting what they can come up with. And that's what architects kind of do. We provide spaces for people's lives to... Um, unfold and and so it's it's sort of incumbent on us to provide that backdrop for for cool stuff to happen right i'm just so much really interesting stuff to think about so i'll be chewing on this one a while so thank you so much for joining me today thank you maria cheers we'll be right back everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor splunk you know you need to keep operations humming around the clock but potential disruptions are everywhere 
Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. Welcome back. Now, what are the chances of you getting hit by a meteorite? Now, <laughs> calculations. <laughs> Minor one would hope, yes. <laughs> calculations vary, but one number I've often heard is something like one in 1,600,000. So, you know, slim. And the chances of getting hit by space debris from a spacecraft reentering the atmosphere? Well, ESA estimates that it's three times as unlikely as a meteorite. So, again, slim. But don't tell me the odds, Isa also says, because when it comes to re-entering their own satellites, they want to implement best practices for human safety concerns. And that's just what Isa did with the re-entry of Aeolus on July 28th. Now, Isa just published a really cool blog post showing the final path of the wind-measuring satellite, which it called a first-of-its-kind assisted re-entry. They guided the satellite to take a really long road from the North Pole to the South Pole over the Atlantic Ocean, and then it began burning and breaking up over Antarctica, all the while as far away from human habitation as possible. This path, says Isa, lowered the risk of debris falling from three times less likely than a meteorite hitting you to 150 times less likely than a meteorite hitting you. Those are some odds. Now, any fragments that may have hit the ground, according to ESA's Space Debris Office, are somewhere over Antarctica, but nobody was around to see any potential debris fall because, of course, that was the whole idea. So why did ESA put in the extra work to deorbit Aeolus as safely as they possibly could? Well, here's the explanation from Holger Krag, head of ESA's Space Safety Program. Space is limited and shared, and therefore space sustainability must be a global effort. To ensure spaceflight for the future, we need to significantly improve the way we design and operate missions today. With Aeolus, we decided to go well beyond what Aeolus was required to do. We hope that by acting as a role model, we can encourage other actors in space to similarly ensure their missions are flown sustainably. Here's hoping. That's it for T-Miners for August the 4th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead of the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by the one and only Alice Carruth. 
Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. T-minus.